What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I'm here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, two times in a week, we're grinding. We're on that grind. How you doing, man? Hashtag for the culture, dog. We cannot wait. Yeah, we had a lot of stuff to catch up on after uh, having a, a two-week, not a hiatus, but springing some different content for those two weeks. So we talked about music earlier in the week. If you haven't caught up on that, we talked about the new Kanye album, the new Pusha album, Shawn Mendes, Churches, yeah. Spotify, Governor's Lots Ball. of fun there. So find that at soundcloud.com slash NostalgiaPod or on NostalgiaPod on YouTube. Subscribe somewhere below if you're watching the video. We're going to be talking about movies today, uh, and there's a lot to get to. We're going to talk about Solo, Fahrenheit 451, and The Tab. But we want to start with some news first. We mentioned a couple pods back about Joaquin Phoenix taking over the role of the Joker or doing a prequel Joker, an origin story Joker with Todd Phillips tied to it. Very exciting. I think we both were were excited about seeing Phoenix in that role. But then it's announced today that there's also going to be a uh, standalone Joker movie for Jared Leto's Joker from Suicide Squad. I was uh, pretty surprised at this uh and i'm not really sure how this is going to all work within that universe but i'm interested to see how you responded because i think that you might have been a little bit higher in suicide squad than i was i mean that that's all relative i didn't think right. suicide squad was good but yeah i mean jay leto's actually in on producing mm-hmm. this joker movie as well and from his comments around suicide squad a lot of the scenes he shot didn't make the film and you, and you think about it, joker is not the even the antagonist of the movie he's just kind of like mm-hmm. a side character right and, you know, we'd heard that Leto was attached to future DC films. You know, the Harley and Joker movie was talked about. A Suicide Squad 2 is still kind of expected at some point. So I never thought Jared Leto's Joker was one and done. Um, but this is yet another DC EU movie announced via the Hollywood trades. We're still not getting any kind of talk from Warner mm. Brothers themselves. Like, we'll get the Star Wars later, but they announced the Benioff and Weiss trilogy and the John Favreau show and the Ryan Johnson trilogy. They came out and said that, that was, those were real things and those things were happening. And DC, every movie we hear about, uh, whether it's the Batgirl movie having Joss Whedon, then Joss Whedon leaving Batgirl, and then Batgirl going in the back burner. This is all just reporting. Like, nothing is coming from Warner Brothers, right? So I never thought we'd get a Joker solo movie this soon, but I mean, the only DC movies still that have release dates are Aquaman later this year in December, and the next year we have Shazam with Zachary Levy and Wonder Woman 2. Like, The Flash still doesn't have a date. The Batman with Matt Reeves, that still doesn't have a date. So, like, everything's still so nebulous with them. I just kind of get frustrated that we can't get any, like, real messaging but at the same point, I also don't put a whole lot of stock in this yet because until they actually confirm it's happening, it could be like any other report. The movie's kind of happening. The movie's kind of not. There was the Harley Quinn Birds of Prey report kind of recently as well. But I mean, what are you going to believe? What would you want to see out of a, a letter Joker movie? I, I have some some thoughts, but I wanted to see what you threw out there first before I dropped the, the fire content I've come up with. Some people I know just totally hated his portrayal of the Joker. You know, I thought I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. because it was different. I didn't think he was bad. It was just he made a choice. And I think given more time, maybe a little better direction, being in a better film, I think it, it could be cool. It's kind of like Venom, the Venom movie coming. Having a villain as your lead, are you going to make them like a full villain, more anti-hero? He's going to be comedic. You know, I mean, there's so many angles to potential Joker film that I don't know. But I mean, I think a lot of people would love to see, just try and capture something from how the Joker was in the Batman animated series. But 
that might already clash too much with the Joker we got in Suicide Squad. So I don't know. Maybe Leto changes it up a little bit. Who knows? But anything with the criminal right. enterprises in Gotham, I don't know. You, you assumingly you would not have Batman, right? And like you know, they're it's yin to the yang. So how do you tell a Joker story without Batman or without Harley Quinn? It's a good question. I think it has to center. It can't go younger Joker, or at least not that much younger, just because you have Joaquin Phoenix playing a origin story. Um, I was thinking, what if what if they did a whole movie just about? Uh, the Joker and why he chose the tattoos that he chose or why he chose mm. those teeth. Like sure. <laughs> just kind of going through like flashbacks to his past and like looking at like how he like decided on each thing. I mean, it, this is also kind of silly in a way. Cause like the Joker having these tattoos is something that Leto, I think came up with himself, like his own mm-hmm. concept of the character and people, it kind of, you know, kind of tore people apart <laughs> or at least the fan base apart. Right. Um, so I, I mean, the the other thing I was thinking is just like if they did a like not not the killing joke, but something similar in that vein, a much grittier, um, you know, older Batman, older Joker, like near the ends of both of their crime fighting and uh, whatever careers, and looking at that. But man, I mean, when the line that sticks out most to me from the Suicide Squad Joker is "This bird is cooked." Like I have, <laughs> I, have I have very little expectation for a Leto yeah. movie. I mean, I would assume that the more artistic choices would be reserved for the Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, because that's like separate. As far as we know, this Jared Leto Joker movie, by very existence, is connected to all the other DCEU movies, so it might have to serve continuity in a certain regard, but, you know, again, there's still a lot lot open, but um, I'll wait for a... uh, a script i don't think was there a script announced yet like I, I there's still a lot of work ahead of them like most of the dc movies that get talked about so we'll wait and see definitely a lot to wait and see and let's jump to fahrenheit 451 something that you and i were both really excited about ramen barani directed this michael b jordan starred in it with michael shannon and sophia batella also having significant roles in the film you know, based off of uh, an older, you know, a book from what the fifties, I believe, uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one. Yeah, was. the Ray Bradbury book came out in fifty three, yeah. and obviously they they updated this. Uh, they made they try to stylize it a lot more, and instead of the television being the the force that they're fighting, like they're trying to control, it's now the internet they're trying to uh, tame or reduce, like the content that society can intake. Uh, man. High expectations. Michael B. Jordan seems seems like he can't miss nowadays. Uh, big swing, big miss in my opinion. This thing was trash, absolute trash. And not only that, but Michael B. Jordan was absolute trash in this movie, and I was very disappointed. Uh, Michael Shannon was Michael Shannon, but man, I was really let down by this. Yeah, I thought Shannon was pretty solid. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was playing himself the way Woody Harrelson was playing himself in Solo, which we'll get to. <laughs> but, and I thought Sophie Batalla was actually good. Oh, she I'm, was I'm great. Just, I find her incredibly compelling. Put her in more stuff yes. again. Loved her in Atomic Blonde. But yeah, I thought Michael B was a little overacting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he also delivered some weak lines. That's not his fault. The way Montag evolves really fast. I don't know. It was very jarring. Yep. So I, yeah, I didn't like his performance that much. But the thing about this movie is it's a 158-page book. So to have it be on the, on the screen, you have to kind of, I feel like you have to kind of do a lot of work to not make it so jarring. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't do that. They, this movie was still only like, what, 96 minutes or something? Like, yeah. It seemed pretty short, pretty quick. Um, really just all about moving the plot. Mm-hmm. 
um, Laura Harrier played his wife, uh, but they cut that role uh, on the cutting room floor. She's not even in the movie. She's kind of an important character in the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you remember her. She played uh, Liz in Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's not in the movie at all. And, uh, you know, I thought this had a lot of potential. I, I don't have any problem with them modernizing. I think it's a kind of a smart, uh, convenient way to justify, you mm-hmm. know, a, a remake of, of the movie. They did a movie version, you know, uh, several decades ago. And, you know, they ended up having the internet in there and like hard drives and AIs and stuff. There was a lot of potential, but, and like I thought it looked decent, you know, as a dystopian world. But overall, I think it just fell incredibly flat. It, the storytelling was very simple. And yeah, like I said, it was really all about advancing the plot. There was not a lot of nuance. I think you touched on something that I thought was the strongest part of it. It was just that the world looked great. It had this almost like futuristic noir feel to it. Almost like a Black Mirror type uh Sure. You know, episode of like the Daniel Kaluuya one, um, what, 15 Million Merits or something like that. Yeah, uh, a lot of good shadows and stuff, mm-hmm. and the fire looked good. Yeah, and, and I thought Patella was great, too. Um, but to go back to Michael B. Jordan's uh, poor dialogue, the, I, I can't get this, like, one scene. I forgot what the name of the, the thing that, like, hangs out in the house, the, like, Alexa-type thing that's in right, the, yeah. the household. But um, at one point... And there, there goes my mine in the background. Um, at one point, it literally he literally says "turn off" or "go go dark," and then it responds go to him dark, as he's yeah. reading, and he's like, "I thought you were turned off," and I was like, "Oh God, that was so bad." I mean, it was just cringy at, at points, especially because we saw Michael Shannon's character go dark and then put a lamp, yeah, over it for extra privacy, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Guy," his name's literally <laughs> yeah. Guy, Guy. Why didn't you think about this? Come on, like I think because living in 2018, any normal viewer understands how surveillance yeah. works. I'm like, oh, your phones might be listening to you. Your Alexa's definitely recording at least some stuff from you, mm-hmm. right? So, like something so simple like that, it's just an oversight that just comes off as really lazy. Right. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that, like you said, it's a very quick development, and the thing that like stirs him is this woman lighting herself on fire, and then you know. Um, Beatty kind of egging him on, you know, giving him opportunities to like read the books, things like that. But they cut out two major things from the book that really drive the character development. And like you talked about them cutting his his wife out, she's a major part in the book in terms of helping, you know, kind of pushing along his character development. Because if I remember correctly, she dies from a, a overdose. I believe she's a more a, a bigger character than Clarice. Huge character, yeah. And Clarice, I think, is in the book briefly, and her she also dies in the book. I mean, spoiler to anyone that hasn't read Fahrenheit 451. Uh, yeah, fuck <laughs> you. If you haven't, if you're actually mad about but that. But it's just, it, I don't really understand how you can try to, I, I guess maybe they wanted to give uh, Batella a, a larger role. They probably felt like her performance was so strong, they wanted to kind of maybe make that bigger, but just overall, it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. Um, yeah, and it was really disappointing because I really thought that this with this cast could have been great. Yeah, and, but but also, I mean, to, to, to cut the wife character, to cut any kind of nuance, any kind of extra mm. scenes of the characters just being the characters, I still don't understand why you did that because the movie was 96 minutes long. Right. Uh, it's on HBO. There's no mandate for it to be short. We're talking about the tale in a second. That's a two-hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe the script was just weak to a point that I needed to rework it, and this is the best possible uh, film they could have made off what they shot, you know, perhaps. Perhaps. But 
if that if that's the case, I think it's a rare miss from HBO, and I guess this kind of similar to a movie like Paterno, which was like not as good as everyone thought it'd be, but still mm-hmm. good. Like Fahrenheit 451, we expect it to be better, but maybe it's more in line with some of the other HBO movies made where you can't expect too much. I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I think we'll, we're going to be talking about HBO property you know, moving forward. We haven't really talked about Westworld in a while. Um, and uh, Secession started. So uh, we're going to be catching up. But I think that they've been actually taking a lot of L's recently, um, especially after, you know, last year they had The Young Pope, which was kind of out of nowhere and so good. Um, a, a down year for HBO just as a, a channel in general or a, a service in general. Why don't we jump to the tale, though? You, you prefaced it real quick. Directed by Jennifer Fox, a story about her life and her own experience. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, this has a 98%. One negative review out of 52 um, to this point. And it's higher than I thought it would be, but this was a pretty damn good movie. Um, you know, we I was just kind of knocking them a second ago, but I think that this was, you know, it's a project that's been in the works for, I think, three or four years now mm-hmm. um and i think there's been multiple people attached to it but laura dern you know ended up playing the role of of jen fox in the in the movie and her and the child uh, isabel and elise are just fantastic in this and they give really powerful performances around a really difficult topic um what, what stood out to you about this movie yeah and you know it's you can't actually give HBO too much credit for this besides opening up the wallet because mm-hmm. we mentioned this when it was at Sundance uh, earlier in the year. And after Sundance, HBO just bought this, right? So they didn't like, you know, produce this themselves. Right. They're just distributing it, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think what, what stood out to me actually was the nonlinear storytelling. Um, there's flashbacks, obviously, with adult Laura Dern and the, the little kid as well um, as, you know, just basic memories, but also then how like they're talking to themselves and, uh, the older Fo- uh, Jen Fox is just trying to like reason with her younger self. And uh, I think overall it's a very effective movie and um, it's kind of a tough discussion because what it's about someone who's trying to like internalize and rationalize and justify uh, pedophilia. Vic- their, th- yeah. Like their victimness and trying to like, you know, like reject that it's it's deep themes it's not it's not something as cut and dry as advancing the plot like in Fahrenheit 451 you know yeah it it's really heavy um you know my my initial reaction as the movie was wrapping up was just kind of like a sigh of relief that it was over and that's not because I didn't find it to be well done that's because you know you're sitting with you know someone's trauma and a a serious like look into the experience of trauma that's actually where I think Dorn uh Dorn Laura Dern um plays this role almost perfectly, you know, because you kind of see her at the beginning of the movie. She's this, uh, you know, documentary maker, very successful in this relationship with her boyfriend who's common, but she kind of hints at that, you know, she's never wanted to like have a a committed relationship, doesn't want to settle down throughout the movie as she's kind of forced to face this trauma when her mom finds this, this uh, essay she wrote about, you know, mentioning the inappropriate relationship that was being had. Um, it, it really like you see her through the movie in different ways to start to unravel and really start to like wear it in like her body posture and her face and the way that she talked. And I, I think back to that, that coffee shop scene between her and Iris, you know, as adults mm-hmm. and man, like the way Laura Dern talks about it, even just when she's like, 
Yeah, like like even just the way like she delivers that, yeah, right. like whoa, like very heavy, very weighty performance. And I mean, shout out Isabel Nelise, who playing basically aside, alongside Jason Ritter for most of the movie, who was like way too good in like a very pedophilic yeah. role. Um, yeah, no, and but they, that, they don't hold like, anything back either. Star. No. Yeah, like I mean, they they have to tell you at the end that there's an adult body double for the uh, mm-hmm. sexual scene. So you know they were. They were going for it, but I, I think Elizabeth Debicki actually really stood out to me too. She played uh, uh, Mrs. G, younger Mrs. Yep. G. Uh, I first came aware of her from uh, The Man from Uncle. She was really good in that, and like she has that line where she's like talking to the camera and that like fake, um, you know, like uh, interview. interview that that Jen is having with her, and then she was like, "No one saved me," mm. and you know, just all these telltale signs of abuse. But mm-hmm. you know, when you actually talk to someone who it's happened to and is perpetuating it it's it's no really easy answers um i thought if anything didn't work i thought like the doc uh sorry her uh professor like teaching scenes yeah. like what she was talking about was kind of like as obvious like big idea philosophical stuff it's mm-hmm. uh it, it was pretty uh on the nose and then really in the beginning when uh she first gets to the stable as a kid um there's that line about like jews and like Jews being like higher on the horses and stuff, and it just felt really out of place because it like never came back, like a weird like prejudice thing, prejudice comment. Um, mm-hmm. I, around that time in the movie too, I really liked that sense where initially the memory starts off and she's like 15 years old, and then uh, you know refreshing like, oh wait no, you were younger, you were like around 12, 13 at the time, and like, yeah. the resets, and that's when you get actual the actual young actress who will be in the rest of the movie. So overall, I thought it's uh. It's it's not not necessarily a fun watch, but it's incredible filmmaking. Yeah, definitely something to check out. Why don't we jump to Solo? Because I think we have a lot to dig into here, a lot to break down. Solo, the second anthology movie in the Star Wars universe. Uh, Rogue One came out two years ago, which is kind of crazy to believe it's been two years. Uh, if you want to mm-hmm. hear a review of that, check that out, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. So I mean, we talked a lot about Solo because I think not only the character is maybe one of the most beloved within the Star Wars universe and maybe even movie history, uh, but this also had a lot of production problems. I mean, Lord and Miller were originally signed on to direct this, uh, I think it was July last year, so almost a year. Uh, they were fired by Kathleen Kennedy and Ron Howard was brought on to kind of right the ship and and hopefully bring this thing home <sighs> right now it's sitting at 71 percent on rotten tomatoes and a 62 on metacritic uh i was pleasantly surprised by this movie but i didn't love it um uh, and i've heard people have the whole spectrum some people really like this yeah. friend of the pod sean mckenna said that he would put it like in like the 80s close to 90s I've heard some people mm-hmm. say that this movie is absolute trash and they never want to watch it again. Where do you fall on that scale? I can't understand the trash comments. Like, I can understand people, like, not, like, you know, some will take it, some will leave it. But I, I don't I don't really see how you could say it's, like, really, really bad. Um, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was very entertaining. As a big, hardcore Star Wars fan, there's a lot of moments I really liked and, that, like, really spoke to me. But you know, I, I thought overall, um, it it was a fun ride, and it was more Star Wars in that original trilogy era sense. But it kind of gave us something new. Mm-hmm. The Empire wasn't really a part of it, and I thought it was, you know, despite being three familiar characters, 
featured heavily in the film. And I thought it gave us a little different side of Star Wars, and I, that's why I really liked it. Yeah, it it was definitely a different side. I think I think the things I really liked about this movie, um, you know, I, I thought some of the performances were either better than I, than I expected or really good. I thought Amelia Clark was actually really good in this movie for the first time yeah. on, on the big screen. She really nailed it. Aaron Reich, I thought was serviceable as Solo, and I mean he's he's in a no win position as Han. Um, you know, people if they want him to be, uh, you know. I don't know. They want him to be doing an impersonation of Harrison Forge. That's no one actually wants to see that. But if he does, puts his own spin, people are going to say, "Well, it's not like the actual mm-hmm. Han Solo." So he's in no position. I thought he was fine. Um, and Lando was great. Um, I also thought that they did some really cool moments, like when uh, Tobias Beckett gets in the the guns of the Millennium Falcon, and like Luke's music played, like the same music that plays mm-hmm. when he got in the gun turret. Sure. The first time I was like, "Ooh, yeah. that's a cool callback," and just little things like yeah. that they did really well. There were a few moments where like the original Star Wars score pops in, primi- primarily in the Falcon, mm-hmm. which I thought was a cool touch. But yeah, I mean, you probably should probably start with Aaron Reich. I mean, like you said, he's in a no-win situation, but having watched Solo, there's like no one else I would have rather had done it. You mm-hmm. know, I thought. He he did like a comp- he he felt like a young Han to me, who was still becoming Han. You know, I think some people were coming to this expecting him to be like the rogue, the scoundrel that he is at the start of A New Hope, right? Mm-hmm. And if that was the goal, if that was the case, um, that would have been hard because he would have just been straight up aping Harrison Ford's performance, which is pretty hard. He's one of the most uh, charming and handsome actors in the history of Hollywood. So it's a, it's a tough ask, but I don't think that's really what they wanted him to do. And it's funny. Cause like those really early reports when like the negative production notes started coming out about how Aaron Reich's really bad. They might've brought in an acting coach and he's like, he, it's kind of like Ace Ventura. And like even the moments in the movie that was, that were lighter and probably Lord and Miller scenes, mm-hmm. he didn't feel like Ace Ventura. So no. like, I think some, some of this, uh, gaslighting, was a little overblown, let's put it that way. But um, I think the thing about like the reception of the film, though, is that everyone's coming into this movie, with the exception of maybe young, very young kids, everyone's coming into the movie with, with a personal bias, mm-hmm. one way or the other, right? Uh, a lot of people didn't think there should have been this movie just because it was kind of superfluous. You could say the same about Rogue One, and a lot of people do. Other people say that Harrison Ford is the only Han Solo no one else should play him, which is a fair take, I suppose. Um, and then a lot of people were just kind of perturbed about, you know, Ron Howard getting forced in to finish the movie. So, you know, a lot of, I think there's a lot of muted buzz, muted enthusiasm about the movie and that can definitely affect people's perception of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I think Han, I thought Han was effective in the movie, uh, you know, full stop. And I think everything around him, I, so I, there's talk about the script and whether it was good enough to justify firing lord and miller i still don't really think that was the reason they were fired Mm -hmm. but i think the script is actually kind of a strength because it's straightforward Mm -hmm. and it it kind of leads aaron reich you know he's not so i i I was very very i I was like you said pleasantly surprised because a lot of people a lot of us were coming in expecting something bad and you know could we ever really expect lucasfilm to you know drop a turd on us and (laughs) I don't think they. I don't think they'll ever do that, and they didn't. Well, I wanted to ask you. You know, you're talking about Aaron Reich's performance. What did you think about that opening scene? You know, like the before the he's in the army there. 
right with a uh, lady proxima yeah, try on Corellia. Yeah. first of all Corellia, trash ass planet and just like a whole mm-hmm. uh, that horrible uh, that whole first scene like the way he gets the speeder out of chase it, he throws a rock through a window like <laughs> what uh, okay but go on what do you think well as a, as a star wars nerd i was like ah oh, cool you recanonized Corellia as han's planet nice han uh Han applied to be a, uh, in the Empire, and he washed out of the Academy. You brought that back. Nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that is that is kind of a weak point, but I just feel like it didn't take that long to progress. I mean, the thing is, like, the fact that he'll be separated from Kira, from Amelia Clark, it's so obvious to anyone who's ever seen a movie before Obviously. that maybe having that much build-up to it, you know, wasn't necessary. But at the same point, I guess they wanted to kind of you know strike home their relationship make it make sense considering it is kind of the mm-hmm. you know mover driving force for the movie um but yeah i think that that's certainly you know a weak point um some people said it, it, it took too long to end i didn't feel that way but i can understand yeah that that opening scene if it, it was probably only like 12 minutes or something like that it felt to me like a half hour and then when he it basically ends with him crying next to this box like after he joins the the empire, uh, you know, the empire, and I was just like, "Oh God, this is gonna be a slog." It picks up pretty quickly because then basically it's like a cut yeah. scene into that war scene, which freaking awesome. Great. Like just, yeah. I I want more of that. If we're gonna do another spinoff, give me like some like a real gritty like Star Wars like battles like uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bradford Jones cinematography in this is just like I think that is the the major saving grace for this film. That's just looks great the whole time right there actually is a few cute cool really cool shots like there's one of han with his hand like over the blaster uh, towards the Mm -hmm. end and it's like you know those are just like ryan johnson had did did a lot of cool techniques as well last jedi but generally that's something we haven't really had Mm -hmm. um interesting enough indywire ran a piece about this so bradford young's uh cinematography definitely stands that definitely unique look right i think a big part of that is it it uses a lot of low light situations Mm -hmm. And apparently throughout the country, there were certain the- a lot of theaters that weren't up to normal projection standards, and the movie was just coming across too dark. It was really dark in like my just, theater. Yeah, so it was just like what you were supposed to be seeing was not what you were getting because the theater wasn't up to standard. And a lot of like you know people in cinema circles were really pissed off about this because it's Bradford Young, a really big shot uh, cinematographer, obviously a rival, mm-hmm. a movie we both really love and definitely a unique look to mm-hmm. it. So... Um, that's unfortunate, but yeah, I mean, overall, he was a great choice, and I, I would love to see them continue to bring uh, unique, you know, people with the camera. How, how'd you feel about Lando? He had a like a Donald Glover playing Lando Calrissian. I thought he basically became Billy D. Williams in this movie, uh, but I've seen some people pan his performance, saying it was kind of uh, almost just too um, too much of an impersonation and not much of his own spin on the role. Again, I, I do not understand that because, I, in my opinion, it, it, it's so weird because Don Glover, way more famous than Alden Ehrenreich, mm-hmm. yet he's by almost by default gonna be a better Lando. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought I thought he was great. He was what? What did Billy D tell him to do? Uh, be charming. Yeah. That's what he was charming as shit. He was super fucking suave. He had great lines. L3 was a great part of the movie. Oh, really? Um, I did not like L3 at all. Really? Uh, I, 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 Again, like Rogue One with K2 from Alan Tudyk, I thought yet another uh, droid character that steals the scenes she's in. I mean, you didn't like definitely her? stole stole the scenes that she was in. Uh, 
you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge voicing L3. I thought that there were moments where she was really funny, but then there were also moments that I was just like, ah, oh, God, like, it felt like Lord Miller put them, like, destroyed in there to just be this, like, zany character of the uh, that they were playing with. Are you are what are what would you not like like the references to a relationship with Lando? That that was definitely something that I was kind of like, eh, not not so sure about this. I I hated in the like the final battle scene when she like liberates the droids. I just kind of was. Like, oh, you didn't like that? I, Interesting. I just kind of. I mean, like, good liberate the droids, but like just like then they're like jumping up on top of the computers and like it just it felt very like ewoky to me in a way and like but not in the way that i'm like mm. oh cuz i like i get the ewoks like they play a part like whatever but like almost to the point where it's just like they're focusing on this like add like comic relief instead of actually adding something really to the story in my opinion um also just i i did think it was really funny when she said that she couldn't uh perform when everybody was watching her that was a really funny scene <laughs> like i i give them props for that but overall i just f- kind of find found L3 kind of grating in a way interesting yeah, I mean, I I thought it was cool that you we finally had like a, a female droid of substance. I agree with that. Um, basically, every other droid is a is a dude, mm-hmm. uh, or or dude esque. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, like the droids are always like a you know a tangential part of Star Wars, but you know they're clearly second class citizens. Mm-hmm. You know they don't we don't serve your kind here, right? right. The cantina. So you know, kind of playing into that and having her. <laughs> be like droids rights like she was a feminist i mean i i I thought it was great and like that scene where right before we meet lando at the first sabacc game where like there's like it was like they were fighting fighting but it was droids and she's like no you don't have to do this you Mm -hmm. have autonomy i I don't know i I really worked for me i thought it was because it's like something that you could totally see uh see existing in star wars Mm -hmm. but we've never actually gotten it yet you know um but actually what happens to l3 with her going into the becoming part of the falcon Mm -hmm. I thought was the fucking awesome uh, retcon. Yeah. Because if we remember this quote from C-3PO, sir, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. <laughs> also, then, he calls it really smart, right? He says Millennium Falcon's really smart, and that's L3's whole thing, is she mm-hmm. has all, like the most advanced navigating system in like the galaxy or something like that. Yeah, so, and even la- the Last Jedi uh, novelization references the peculiar quirks and personality of the falcon it's kind of something that's been referenced and talked about uh for a long time and now there's actually kind of a reason for it and again that's something that did we ever need that to be explained of course not but why not explain it when you're already going to make the movie that's my take on it yeah i thought i thought it was fine i didn't have a problem with it and i thought it was nice to add something in there um you know i mean it's Another thing I didn't really like about the movie, kind of going back to that scene, was, um, you know, they're they're worried about getting, you know, figuring out how to get out of there, and they got to keep the what what like petroleum or whatever it is, the, like the space coaxium, fuel. yeah, coaxium cold, but like they they like basically looked at it once, and then they were like, oh, it'll be right. fine, and then like they never yeah, went back to that, it, like that. that it wasn't really up. the ticking time bomb it was presented to be. I agree exactly. Um, it was like a fake stakes. I. I also am kind of middling on, on the Chewbacca thing. I, I liked how they met. I just was like, I don't know if you need to like ex- have him explain that he can understand, like speak Wookiee and then never go back to speaking Wookiee again. He's just like, after that's like, oh, now I can understand English. It's like, I don't know. Hmm. It was, it was fine. I didn't hate it. Didn't love it, but it was just kind of like, eh, but I did like Chewie being like this, like 
captive that was like eating people and then just like <laughs> it, like the the back and forth between Aaron Reich and Chewie and it was great. Yeah, it was a cool callback initially to like the Rancor scene in mm-hmm. Jedi, right? Um but they kind of recanonized the Wookiees being enslaved by the Empire thing and um what was actually kind of interesting to me is I thought they would kind of spell out the life debt aspect to it a little um a little more bluntly. Mm-hmm. But they they you know I think they kind of just left it alone. It's kind of assumed. But we got a lot of other things. Like we saw Han got his name. Han got his blaster. Han obviously how he got the Falcon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought maybe the Chewie life debt would kind of be name dropped or something. Um, along those lines, actually, a really cool thing for the dorks was when uh, Lando meets Beckett for the first time, and he's like, "You're Tobias Beckett. You could Aura Singh." And everyone in you know, all the Star Wars nerds are like, "Oh shit, Aura Singh's died. What the fuck?" You remember she was the um, that tall lady with the white skin with like the antenna in her head. She's like watching the pod race for like three frames mm-hmm. in Menace, and then she's like obviously badass in the cartoons, the comics. But that was all she was in the movies. So that was a cool like you know combining of worlds thing for me. Yeah, um, obviously doesn't make the movie or anything. But I think we should really talk about um, the two set pieces of the film. There's First, the train mm-hmm. uh, heist in the towards the beginning in Act One, and then the Kessel Run, of course. Right. So, how'd you feel about those? Because I thought the train heist in particular, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, that was the part of the movie where I was like, "All right, let's go." Like, uh, I mean, you go the, the war scene kind of throws you right into the middle of the action, then it kind of slows back down again. But then the train heist, I mean, Tandy Newton is is awesome in that scene um, for sure. But I mean, I, I just thought that that was a really great way to not only like bring some excitement and kind of bring that um, kind of the spirit of the film more into focus that this is what Han does. This is what his life was like, like doing these sort of heists and being this kind of scoundrel, but also just uh, like the setting of it and like the look of it was awesome. And being on this like moving train and then Han having to go up into the ship and fly for like, or at least you see him pilot for the first time uh, as John Favreau's mm-hmm. alien dies which is also like so uh, random yeah rio so that's john yep. favreau um shout out pot save america um yeah i mean it, it, i think that was that was great the kessel run was a little bit less for me you know with that like octopus uh type space thing which seemed very lord and millery mm-hmm. to me so i was kind of like okay like this is fine um but i uh, yeah, the the train in particular i thought was probably the best scene in the movie right by you i did like how um how the kessel run ends where like they like overload the Falcon, then it doesn't work at first. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, now it's gonna happen. And then you know, re-kicks yeah. in. But that was cool. Um, yeah, Tanny Newton's Val, uh, she was really effective in a short amount of time. You almost wish she got more of that. Yep. Um, and perhaps her death probably could have meant more if she was in the movie longer. But I don't think that was really the intention. Um, interesting though, like Beckett's whole uh, theme or shtick about not trusting anyone, not tr- you know, don't you know, only root for yourself was kind of initially jarring because he was kind of close and seem, seemingly uh, trusting of Val. He, they were, so. I think they were married. Uh, her name is yeah. Val Beckett and his name is Tobias Beckett. Oh, so. well, there we go. Yeah, so <laughs> that was an interesting note to me. Yeah, and, um, and then she dies and he's like upset for like one second and he's like, oh, now we have to go figure out how we're not going to get killed. It's like, right. dude, like the only person in the whole world that you trusted just got blown up or just blew herself right. up. Like, I don't know. And I, I actually really thought Enfys Nest was compelling both as just antagonists because as we start we're like oh they're like rival gangsters or rival um rival smugglers whatever they are and cool let's see that that that's a part of star wars we don't really get but you know is out there Mm -hmm. 
And then we oh realize, wait, it's a little kid. And it's the fledgling rebellion connection as well. So I thought Enfys Nest was really cool. Uh, how'd you feel about Paul Bettany? How'd you feel about <laughs> the vision playing Dryden Voss? <laughs> I, 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 Crimson Dawn. I was fine with it. I mean, I think it was kind of obvious that they, they, I mean, Michael K. Williams was originally set to play this role. I think he's actually supposed to be like an alien, which I mean, right. you, you get one black guy in it, or I guess the second black guy in the movie and you're going to make him an alien. Like Lando's the only guy that's allowed to be black in this. I guess Mace Windu right. as well. Right. Right, but Lupita Nyong'o also did a mocap work she, for Mass and as an alien. So. Yep, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I th- I thought he was fine. Like for having to basically be put back in the movie on very short notice, they probably only had a couple days with him. He's, I mean, he's a little out there, a little flamboyant, but that's that's freaking Paul Bettany. Let him do his thing. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's a thing that like I didn't quite understand. Like, oh, uh, Donald Glover is clearly in a different movie than everyone else, and Paul Bettany is just kind of <laughs> going for it. I'm like. So there's no personalities right. in the vast Star Wars galaxy. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to have the same tone. Like I didn't quite understand that. I mean, like there's prequel characters like the Death Sticks guy who's way out there and way <laughs> off of fucking Obi Wan's, uh, you know, wavelength. Like yeah. we have this throughout all of Star Wars. I just don't. I don't understand that critique. You know, um, but yeah, I, th- I thought Batman yeah, was mean, good though. I, I, I thought he was good. Um, I thought his relationship with Kira and like, he was, he was menacing. Definitely. And, like he has this like fucking like space sex, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, which is traveling around. Very He's Star always going to show up. Yeah. Like it was, it was dope. Yeah. Jabba would have had that same thing if he could have, uh, could have had the glow up. Um, well, what did you think of the mall? Uh, I don't know. Appearance at the end. Oh, right. So Darth Maul shows up via hologram actually played by Ray Park, the guy who played him. Back in ninety nine, looking like like and voiced by he looked like the Night King, like almost to a T. It was like <laughs> and a little jar, right? And voiced by Sam Witwer, who voiced him mm-hmm. uh, on Clone Wars, because Maul has been back for some time. So apparently, according to the Kasdans, uh, their script said that we you you put that spot there, and that could be you know any character you want. It could be Jabba, maybe it could be Prince Z or you recanonize Black Sun. It could be Boba Fett, perhaps. Or it could be Darth Maul, and Ron Howard went with Darth Maul, apparently. Um, I think it's incredibly interesting that Lucasfilm would so acknowledge the canon cartoons, Clone Wars and Rebels, so explicitly. Because while Darth Maul has been back since season four of Clone Wars back in 2012, the majority of people that saw this movie have no idea about that and don't give a fuck anyway. (laughs) So the fact that you're going to do this and say, hey, Maul got cut in half 19 years ago, but he didn't die then. He actually already came back. You can go find that out if you care, or you can wait for what we're going to do with him next. Right. And there's no reason that they would sanction bringing him back if they weren't going to do something else with him. Because he's already had a lot of Clone Wars stuff, so I think that's probably speaking to the Obi-Wan spinoff that's talked about but not confirmed yeah i think it's very telling of what where they're going next with it and uh it kind of brings me to i think you know kind of the way we wanted to wrap up this discussion this movie uh had like i think 80 million plus the opening weekend and then it really tailed off the second weekend it's only made 155 million uh domestically and 271 million 
worldwide. You know, on pace right now to lose money, I think it'll probably come close to breaking even, if not maybe a little bit more. But people said that we didn't need another uh, a solo movie, that this was kind of superfluous. Mm-hmm. They announced that there's going to be a Boba Fett spinoff, um, and I, I believe that they have a director. James, James Mangold, director of Logan. Very exciting. So... so I mean, they're, they're sticking with this plan. And I think an Obi-Wan spinoff has almost been confirmed. Lando spinoff has almost been confirmed. Like, there's a lot of movies coming down the pike here. Uh, what What's your take around that? I mean, is there, is, do they really want to keep doing this if they can't guarantee they're going to make a lot of money? I think it's a lot of factors. Most of the box office analysts say that the main thing was that this came out five months away from Last Jedi. That's simply not enough lead time when the movie wasn't marketed like a normal Star Wars movie. How recently did we get the first trailer? It was, what, the Super Bowl? Yeah. Like, it just hasn't been aware in the public consciousness for the average person enough, combining that with negative reports, muted buzz from fans due to knowledge of said reports, it being a Han movie that some people didn't watch, is all these factors coming out ahead. Like you said, it made, I think, 80, was it 83 for a three-day weekend, mm-hmm. 101 for the four-day, and from over Memorial Day, a holiday weekend. Dude, it was projected to make, like, 130 to 150. 150 would have been on par with Rogue One. Mm-hmm. So it was just really, uh, and then it fucking bombed Huge overseas. Huge So, um, you know, Rogue One made a billion dollars, but that might have set people uh, off, you know, the wrong calculus. But I think the main thing is it was marketed really badly, and, you know, also another thing is it's good. It's not great. It's the first, mm-hmm. you know, Star Wars movie besides the prequels that's like, you know, it's good. Like, there's not like a whole lot of like horror saving bad. Some people really like it. I really like it. But I don't think there's enough buzz about it. You got to go see this the way there's buzz about Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and even Rogue One. So, um, you know, them going forward, Episode Nine doesn't come out till December of next year. I think this actual extended break is good for Star Wars brand, mm-hmm. but you know Marvel can handle three movies a year. I think Star Wars could too. They just have to be the right movies, and I think Lucasfilm will find their way because we have to remember this solo movie was again greenlit what five years ago in 2013. We haven't seen any Star Wars movie besides the ones that got announced five years ago. So I think Lucasfilm. You know, if you want to do the positive spin, I think this they will learn a lot from uh, why this didn't perform well, despite being, you know, being probably as good as they could have made it, given the troubles behind the scenes. And maybe Lucasfilm will be a little more uh, open to working with creatives. You know, so I think there's a a lot to talk a lot a lot to take away from it. And ultimately, I think it's unfortunate that the movie won't be seen by as many people, mm-hmm. given uh, how how good I think it is. But you know. Uh, how Lucasfilm operates moving forward with the Ryan Johnson trilogy, the Benioff and Weiss trilogy, and the Boba Fett, uh, James Mangle movie, which was announced in the trades literally the day Solo dropped. That was a ta- tactical move. Uh, and a Boba Fett movie you don't assume would make a billion dollars. No. So maybe they're going to be okay with taking more shots and lowering the expectations depending on the type of movie. But, uh, you know, Star Wars ain't going away. It's okay. But this might not make money first one ever for them yeah i can't remember the quote but there was a quote by kathleen kennedy that basically alluded to the fact that lord and miller were just a little too out there you know in their what they're yeah. looking to do so i think that they're probably going to try to go a little safer in terms of mm-hmm. 
you know, who they choose. I mean, Mangold is relatively safe. If he's going to be doing something along the lines of Logan, I think you're getting, you kind of know what you're getting from yeah. that. And you can definitely build a great Star Wars movie through that lens. Lord Miller was definitely from out and out in left field choice. Um, it, what would you want to see for an anthology movie? I mean, we kind of know Obi-Wan, Bubba Fett and Lando are probably coming. What would you want to see though, in terms of a Star Wars story? Well, and, and that's the thing. I think, the idea, the idea, the concept of mm-hmm. the anthology movie, separate from the Skywalkers, we're not, we're getting that like half-assed because Rogue One is incredibly connected to New mm-hmm. Hope, and Darth Vader's in it. Right. And then really we have Solo's origin story along with Chewie and Lando, mm-hmm. three characters we know will live through the movie, right? So, and I don't think we're there yet, but an anthology that's just in the in the galaxy, yeah, whatever the fuck you want it to be, but without someone we know. And that's kind of the hope with what um, Favreau's TV series will be for the Disney streaming service seven years after Jedi. Mm-hmm. Probably with most people we don't know. Um, and then Ryan Johnson's trilogy and Benioff and Weiss's trilogy. I assume at least one of those goes way back. Just let's see Star Wars without anything we know. Okay. You know? Yeah. And like, I think Solo, the Empire was not really in this for really the first time. Mm-hmm. But it was also still fucking Han right. and Lando and Chewie. So you know, it wasn't all the way there. So that, that's what I would want. Just the world, uh, but what's really get away from the original trilogy? You know, you know, I want to see, I want to see that Justin Thoreau uh, Master Code Breaker movie. I just want to <laughs> see him like falling out, you know. Uh, but I also want to see like a heavy leftovers influence. So maybe we get a, uh, maybe we we have him like you know kind of have like suicidal thoughts and like questioning his place in the world like and like near the end of his code breaker career or like a drop off and then mm-hmm. maybe lose a lot of money in the, that, that that casino or something i don't know i want i want to see that yeah. though give me that and also wedge antilles one of my favorites from the original trilogy I, I want to see like like the, like the battle he he was like a in like that universe he had like a long career as like a pilot yeah and as a war Rogue squadron yeah so i want i want to <laughs> see some more of wedge antilles give me his uh his i don't know three movies so <laughs> uh, hit us up with the movies that you want to see star wars make uh at nostalgia pod on twitter youtube uh wherever leave us a reading review on itunes uh, drop us a subscription on YouTube. Any last thoughts around Solo, Dave? I think there's there's a lot to the film, uh, both production and the film itself. Mm-hmm. But I, I I don't I don't think it it's trash. I yeah. I, I I think it I think it's it's good. Yeah, it's pretty you know, good. It's like a seven. Yeah, it's pretty good. And for some people, it's great. You know, so uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people will see it. But hey, it's a learning experience. Yeah. For Lucasfilm. <laughs> it's a 65 to like a 70 for me. So I think that's that's better than where we were thinking it was going to be. So pleasantly surprised. Right. Pleasantly surprised. Uh, we got a lot of stuff coming next week. We alluded to it in the last pod, but Kids See Ghosts, we're going to be talking about uh, Georgia Smith. Uh, I think we're going to be touching on Legion next week uh, is the, the uh, goal, maybe. Ocean's 8. Ocean's 8. Black Thought, Father John Misty. Plenty of stuff to talk about. A lot of stuff. Already out and forthcoming. So uh, stay tuned in. We'll keep bringing you that content. Have a good week. Yeah.